I'm Chair of LSE Health and Social Care and I'd like to welcome everybody to this, the 2010 LSE Health and Social Care uh, Annual Lecture. Uh, we're very privileged to have Sir Christopher Kelly with us. Uh, he's got a very distinguished career, mostly it seems to be in hotspots of one kind or another. Uh, he was 25 years on the Treasury, he was Director of Budget and the, uh, well he finished up as Director of Budget and the uh, public sector borrowing requirement. I expect he's quite glad he isn't there right now. Uh, he was then, uh, uh, he spent uh, three years as permanent secretary of the Department of Health. Uh, he, since then, he's chaired various uh, important groups and committees, and most noticeably, of course, recently, the Committee of Standards in Public Life, which again is not exactly out of the eye of the storm. Uh, and uh, Chair of the Financial Ombudsman Service as well. Um, he's currently Chair of the um, NSPCC, uh, but he's stepping down very shortly to take over as, which I, we hope will be a relatively quieter uh, berth, as Chair of the King's Fund. He's going to talk to us about uh, the future of healthcare and social care. Uh, so, Christopher, back to you. Interesting question 
is how it was before it was exposed to public view in such a spectacular fashion. The House of Commons allowed itself to enjoy expenses arrangements which were so clearly inappropriate and so clearly lacking in the integrity we have a right to expect and those who hold public office. Until last year, until last year, my personal view was that in this country we probably possess one of the least corrupt political systems in the world. On the whole, I still believe that to be the case, uh, though I recognize that it's a potentially dangerous assumption uh, to make for someone with my responsibilities for standards in public life. And I confess that my confidence was uh, more than a bit shaken by, by, my, by what happened. But my personal experience up to last year uh, had always been that the vast majority of members of parliament did understand the importance of behaving with integrity in their public lives, whatever a few of them did in their private lives. And my experience had also been that they worked hard and, or most of them worked hard and largely without self-interest on behalf of their constituents. Indeed, I suspect that many of them work far harder in that respect than many of us appreciate or give them credit for. But many, many MPs believed, and still believe, that they're underpaid relative to what they could earn elsewhere, whatever they may say about that in, in, in public. And they also think that in recent years their pay has fallen behind some of those in the public sector with whom they used to uh, compare themselves, GPs, head teachers, police, uh, superintendents and, and so on. Collectively, they had allowed this belief to grow into a sense that they were entitled, entitled to exploit a generous system of expenses to make up some of the, of the difference. And that sense of entitlement was allowed to flourish because of an almost complete absence of transparency in the system uh, and a wholly inadequate set of audit arrangements. There was also, incidentally, a failure of leadership. Some of those who ought to be most prominent in maintaining high standards of behavior in the House and most zealous in, in guarding its reputation failed to do so. The uh, recommendations of uh, my committee's report were accepted in full by the leaders of all three political parties, um, literally within an hour or so of, of publication. But that was only after the revelations in the Daily Telegraph uh, last July had introduced a sense of urgency. Before then, Parliament had several opportunities to clear up their own mess, uh, and unerringly, without fail, they fluffed, they fluffed all of them. In particular, in one of what I believe to be the most shameful aspects of the whole episode, the House authorities resisted to the bitter end the notion that the Freedom of Information Act should apply to members of Parliament in the same way as they legislated for it to apply to almost everybody else in, in public life. In retrospect, the mess that MPs got into with their expenses should have, should have uh, surprised no one. The combination of the pernicious culture of entitlement to which I referred, combination of that with self-regulation, lack of transparency, inadequate audit and poor leadership was almost bound to be lethal. I suspect that any other professional group faced with the same circumstances would have behaved in the same way. It's not an accident that self-regulation has largely gone out of fashion elsewhere. The House of Commons was just rather slow 
and catching up with the rest of the world. For the House of Commons, the new arrangements now in place ought to ensure that systematic abuse of expenses is no longer possible, but individual instances of bad behaviour can, of course, never be ruled out entirely. And, and personally, I also regret the decision taken by the new independent uh, regulatory authority uh, set up uh, to, to deal with MPs paying expenses in the future. I regret that the decision they've taken to uh, allow members of parliament to continue to use public funds to, in, to employ members of their own family, the only one of our significant recommendations not being implemented by them. There's also still some way to go in the House of Lords. Some valuable reforms have uh, happened there recently, but unlike the Commons, the upper house is still to accept that it's no longer appropriate in a modern world for them to determine their own uh, expenses and remuneration arrangements. And slightly surprising in view of the fact that the House of Lords now is, uh, unlike the Commons, is made up of people who have largely enjoyed significant careers in other, in other, in other spheres. The, the long-term impact of the expenses scandal on trust in politicians or in public office holders more generally is difficult to, to evaluate. There's no denying the, ex the extent of public anger last summer. Many MPs, even those who had behaved with complete integrity in respect to their own expenses, reported being vilified in the street, they and their families. If this were to continue, the impact would be serious. It might be expected to affect the nature and calibre of those putting themselves forward for election. At the extreme, it could call into question the legitimacy of decisions taken in Parliament. It goes without saying that a degree of scepticism is healthy in a democracy. A breakdown in confidence is, is not. At the time, some commentators expressed concern the effect might be to increase support for some of the more extreme political parties. The evidence from surveys last year was equivocal. A Mori poll in September 2009 found that politicians had replaced journalists as a profession believed to be least likely to tell the truth. Only 13% of the British public reported themselves as trusting politicians, a significant decline from the 21% who said they did so in 2008. A Hansard Society poll uh, undertaken a bit later did show a less significant decline in trust, but that was only, I think, in part because po trust in politicians on their measure was already so low that it couldn't realistically fall much further. In practice, as we now all know, some of the dara of the predictions that, that were made uh, were not borne out by the, the general election. The main effects of the expenses scandal seem to have been the large number of MPs who chose not to stand again and the small increase in turnout which might have been uh, more related to the, uh, to the deficit than to the expenses scandal. A few of those whose reputations had been most tarnished um, and who did not stand down voluntarily did lose their, their seats but the smaller parties didn't increase their share of the vote support for some of the more extreme parties like the BNP actually decreased uh, and tribal loyalties seem to have reasserted themselves. Well, that's, uh, that's, um, that's MPs and expenses. If you read some of the papers, you might be tempted to believe that there was a more general crisis of 
of trust in public office holders uh, and in the public services, of which what happened to MPs is only one example, albeit a, a prominent one. If that was the case, if there had been a collapse in trust, it would be a serious issue for all of us. Trust is central to a well-functioning society. Life in a democracy requires us not only to believe that Parliament will legislate fairly and without corruption, something which is particularly important in the absence of a written constitution. We also need to trust the judiciary to uphold that law, to trust the police to protect us in the light of that law without fear or favour, to trust professionals, businesses and public services to be competent and to operate within the law, and to trust a free press to expose transgressors. And of course in private life, as Adam Smith pointed out, trust is important to the efficient functioning of markets and, and greatly reduces transaction costs. Uh, that's one of the reasons why in both the private and public sectors, sensible organisations invest a great deal of care in reputation management. In the health and, and care services, which often touch people at their most vulnerable, we need to trust the surgeon who operates, the GP who gives advice, or the social worker who takes a decision about a child's safety, uh, or finds a care home for our elderly relatives, or indeed for ourselves. When we have a stroke or a heart attack, we don't have the time to look at league tables to determine which hospital has the best record. We need to be confident that whichever hospital we're taken to by the ambulance has, has, competent, has competent staff. Or to take a, another example closer to my own current responsibilities as chair of the NSPCC, the many thousands of children who ring uh, Childline every week need to be confident that the person who answers the phone will treat them with respect, uh, won't pass judgment on them, and that their confidentiality will be respected up to the point at which uh, they're judged to be at immediate risk of serious harm. If, if they didn't have that trust, uh, they wouldn't ring us. If we don't have confidence in the truthfulness, competence, or integrity of the advice given to us, we're less likely to give our children the MMR vaccine, uh, less likely to comply with medication requirements, and less likely to make the lifestyle choices necessary for our health. Of course, virtually every day things happen which damage that confidence. Sometimes it's a failure of regulation, sometimes it's poor leadership and a breakdown of governance, as recently in Doncaster, although there are other reasons there too. Sometimes it's a result by, of a series of poor decisions by an individual or a series of individuals, as in the cases of Victoria Columbia or indeed baby Peter Connolly. Sometimes it's the result of a freedom of information request which casts doubt on the truthfulness or motivation of those concerned, as, as not that long ago with the Climate Research Unit. And sometimes, of course, it may be a combination of all those, all those things. There are a number of factors which might exa exacerbate the situation. Um, a familiar and massive increase in public expectations, which means that professionals are constantly battling to keep up with a moving target. The availability of all sorts of new information about care services, inspection rates, 
mortality indicators, performance of surgical teams, and so on, which identifies the poorer performers as well as the, as well as the good ones. A significant increase in other types of, of sometimes misleading information available through the internet, which means it's quite common for GPs, for example, to report seeing patients who already have a good idea, and not necessarily a correct one, of what those symptoms might imply and what types of treatment they expect. Um, the increased marketization of services, if that's a word, which some have argued could lead, lead to skepticism about the motives of uh, professionals. Is the doctor working in my interest when they suggest the operation, or are they attracting money to their hospital? Alternatively, might they, on the other hand, be rationalizing decisions about treatment to minimize uh, the cost to the public purse? There is a tendency of newspapers to focus on mistakes and errors, um, probably because of a almost certainly correct assumption that competence and trustworthiness are not of themselves very newsworthy. For, confidence, for confidentiality and other reasons, the good news child protection stories, for example, where children are saved from harm and families are successfully helped, rarely have ever made the headlines, and most of those involved would usually not want them to be. And finally, the fact that we're about to enter a period of considerable uncertainty and change in public services generally, on top of the many changes that have already occurred over the past decade. All these things might be thought to be working uh, to reduce trust and confidence in health and care services rather than to increase them. Actually, in the face of all this, the, the evidence, such as it is, uh, is, fairly, is fairly surprising. People seem to make a distinction in their own minds between their own experiences uh, and, and the services as a, as a whole. Uh, this finding is, is remarkably consistent across a range of professions and organizations. In healthcare, for example, individual patients reported satisfaction with their own care is at an all-time high. But the public doesn't seem to think that their own public uh, first positive experiences are replicated elsewhere. Mori Pohl suggests that three quarters of people think that their local NHS is providing a good service, three quarters. But only around half think that the NHS service is good nationally. And only a quarter think that the previous governance, government had the right policies for the NHS. That must be infuriating for those who've injected considerable resources into the health service without seeing commensurate political gain. Even in the case of MPs, constituents are more likely to rate their own parliamentary representative uh, higher than MPs as a, as a whole. The other noteworthy fact about trust is that, um, as, uh, as Onora O'Neill pointed out in a, in a 2002 Reef lecture, whatever we say, our actions still do demonstrate trust in services. We still use doctors, hospitals, and care homes. Uh, there's no evidence that GP attendances declined in the wake of Harold Shipman, despite the banking crisis few of us uh, have yet chosen to keep our money under the, under the mattress. There could be a number of reasons for this, and not all of them entirely comfortable. The most reassuring explanation would be that we trust individual professionals and services, either because they've earned that trust by their behavior and performance, 
or because, more generally, we trust the regulatory or other arrangements designed to ensure good performance. On this explanation, the difference between our views on the particular and the general uh, might be because we base the former on our own experiences and the latter on, on media, media reporting. We do tend to remember failures like those relating to Victoria Columbia, but unless they've touched us personally, we don't translate that into what we think about the services we use ourselves. Even more encouragingly, it could be the case that we understand that single instances, however horrifying they may be, don't necessarily imply anything about the generality of service quality uh, when thousands of care transactions occur every day without anything uh, obviously going wrong. There is an alternative and slightly less reassuring explanation, however, which is that we trust health and care services because uh, we have to. We simply couldn't function if we doubted the uh, quality of the care or advice uh, we're given. Most of us would probably feel fairly confident about judging the quality of, of say, the work done by a decorator in our own homes or the quality of service we receive in a, in a restaurant. Despite the increases in information available, the same will not always um, be the case in relation to healthcare. Um, Cyril Chandler, the current chairman of the King's Fund, who I see has just arrived at the back of the Paul once observed, medicine used to be simple, ineffective, and relatively safe. Now it's complex, effective, and potentially dangerous. Who would ever subject themselves to the attention of a surgeon or physician if they didn't have a reasonable expectation of his or her competence? Broadly speaking, the things that can go wrong with trust and confidence in health and care services are much the same as those that went wrong in the House of Commons in relation to their expenses. Failure to observe the seven principles of public life enunciated by Lord, Lord Nolan, the first chairman of my committee. Poor regulation, particularly where it's self-regulation, lack of transparency, inadequate audit, and poor leadership. Not surprisingly, therefore, the public policy approach to building trust and confidence in health and social care has tended to focus on these, these same issues. Self-regulation as the only means of control has disappeared almost entirely for all professional groups. This is partly, of course, because of the increasing complexity of professional practice, but I suspect it's mainly because of greater understanding of the risk of self-interested behavior, uh, real or perceived, if the only um, arbiter of good practice is, is peer review. The House of Commons is one of the last previously self-regulatory self groups to fall into line. The House of Lords looks increasingly isolated uh, in so far refusing to do so. Regulation and accountability mechanisms, of course, have two purposes. If well designed, they can or ought to incentivize professionals to recognize and observe high standards, and they can or ought to give confidence to the public that those high standards are being observed. But as Anora O'Neill also pointed out in that Reith lecture, the requirement is for intelligent accountability. Poorly conceived accountability mechanisms can be dangerous and uh, self-defeating. Uh, for example, they can impose such onerous 
requirements that they get in the way of professionals pursuing their primary purpose. Um, they, can, they can produce the risk of defensive practice where services select patients or change how they provide care, so the risk of poor performance being reported is minimized. Um, to give one example, in, in child protection cases, it can sometimes not be in the best interests of the child to engage the police and other agencies straight away because that, then that unleashes a whole, uh, a whole chain of events which can uh, be frankly terrifying to the young person concerned. But that can face the social worker in a very difficult dilemma when they know they could get into trouble if they fail to, uh, to inform the other statutory agencies in time and the child suffers serious, serious harm. Or accountability requirements can become mechanisms designed more to protect the professional's own back than to help ensure a high quality of service to, to the client. Or they can provide the wrong incentives. The, there have been several accusations, for example, of, of hospitals hitting the target but missing the point, uh, and the media have reported the gaming of accident and emergency waiting times admitting patients unnecessarily in order to avoid a target breach. And then finally, they can require information to be provided of such complexity that it becomes unintelligible to most recipients. Uh, in financial services, for example, some products are accompanied by fact sheets into which the institution selling the product has put a lot of time and effort. But the fact they have been given the document, um, the fact the client's been given the document is not as itself necessary evidence that a missale has not, has not occurred when the document is so complicated that there's a failure of understanding. Of course, sometimes these points are argued most strongly by those who do not fully accept the case for greater, greater accountability for public services in principle. Uh, there are also two sides for most, to most of them. When public recording of post-cardiac surgery mortality rates was introduced in England, for example, concern was expressed by some that surgeons, surgeons would avoid high-risk cases. There was some evidence of such behaviour uh, in the US. Such evidence as there now is about the UK, however, suggests that it's not happened here. The largely beneficial effect of the publication may instead be to hasten the closure and reorganisation of smaller and usually less effective surgical units. Transparency is one of Lord Nolan's seven principles of public life. For the record, the others are selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability, honesty, and leadership. I, I can never remember them, and I've yet to identify a good mnemonic to remember them all. But its effects on trust and, and confidence, effects of transparency on trust and confidence, can be two-edged. It's without doubt one of the best guarantees of good behavior. Who can doubt, for example, that if the Freedom of Information Act had applied to MPs' expenses from the beginning of 2005, who can doubt that many of the subsequent claims actually made by MPs uh, would have been made, and many individual MPs would not have got into the trouble they did. Again, publication of infection rates in hospitals has undoubtedly provided a significant incentive for better practice in, in that respect. There's also some evidence that the more information citizens have about their own services, the more highly they, they, they rate them. It's for uh, these reasons, I imagine, as well as, of course, as a belief that you can act as a spur to efficiency that all three political parties are 
committed to making available more information about health uh, and about public organizations more generally. But in the short term, increased transparency can clearly damage trust. This is particularly the case when, as with MPs, it reveals details of things which had previously happened uh, but went unobserved before those concerned modify their behavior. Transparency can also pose some, some quite difficult and uncomfortable dilemmas when it conflicts with other principles. In particular, a relentless focus on transparency has almost certainly led to an increase in the blame culture, uh, an effect which has been reinforced by a system of compensation based on, on proving negligence under an adversarial system. If left unchecked, the consequences of that can be serious. It can, as already suggested, lead to an increase in defensive practice. It can seriously affect people's willingness to enter certain professions, such as social work, or indeed to take on certain positions within that profession, such as directors of children's services. And it can inhibit honesty when things go wrong. Um, this last point is particularly important. Care professionals like MPs uh, are fallible. Poor decisions and human error will happen. Honest and, and open handling of them helps to build trust. Serious case reviews in child protection, which is what happens when a child dies as a result of abuse, and serious untoward incident investigations in hospitals rely on honesty if they are to be affected. Yet honesty cannot always be guaranteed if, they, if those concerned know that if they do admit mistakes uh, in, during the inquiries, they run the risk of being publicly pilloried. This is, for example, one reason, though not the only one, why, despite generally being, favor, being in favour of openness, the NSPCC has consistently argued against full publication of, of serious case review reports. Our approach instead has been to ensure that the public is given all the information they have the right to know without, about what went wrong, without inhibiting the honesty of the underlying report or putting at further risk siblings or families who might be identified if full reports were, were published. There are some encouraging signs, I wouldn't put it more highly than that, of a more mature attitude to reporting. Last year, for example, the National Patient Safety Agency reported a 7% increase in the overall number of incidents reported with a 25% increase in cases in primary care. But instead of bemoaning that, the chief executive of the agency said at the time, more reports do not mean more risk to patients, indeed quite the reverse. These data are sound evidence of an improving <coughs> reporting culture across the NHS. Frontline staff are more likely than ever to raise safety concerns much more openly. So where does that leave us? I want to make four points in conclusion. First, it would be wrong to think that what went wrong with MPs' expenses reflected circumstances which were peculiar to them and couldn't happen anywhere, anywhere else. In health and social care, we do appear to have stronger systems of audit than in the House of Commons, and unlike them in the past, we do have external regulation. But if those things are not combined with transparency and strong leadership, uh, there's a risk that just as with MPs, uh, trust will be abused. Indeed, it's almost impossible to overestimate the importance of leadership 
in influencing behavior in organizations. You can have as many, as much regulation, as much transparency, and as much audit as you like. Without strong and effective leadership, they will be uh, not of themselves be, be enough. Unless those in leadership positions in the public services promote high standards by their own behavior and example, high standards will not be embedded in the culture and behavior of their organizations. The second point is this. The overriding requirement of accountability mechanisms is that they should be intelligent mechanisms. That means recognizing that some of the things that are done in the name of accountability can sometimes be counterproductive in terms of outcomes, and understanding that there can sometimes be real dilemmas in applying general principles like transparency, dilemmas which shouldn't simply be ignored but should be addressed honestly. It's also incidentally important that efforts to improve accountability in the health service as elsewhere and to empower citizens through more and better information should not be passive. If they're to work for everybody, these efforts need actively to target the most vulnerable and marginalized who otherwise risk being left behind as the more able and affluent benefit from improved choice and control. Uh, third point, the relationship between trustworthiness and trust and competence is, is complex. The increase in regulation and in performance audits within healthcare may have increased standards, but it hasn't necessarily increased trust and, and, and confidence. There, there are parallels to this elsewhere. When the Committee on Standards in Public Life was originally set up in 1994 in the wake of the Cash for Questions affair, we were charged with keeping standards of behavior under review and with making recommendations intended to approve them. That remit was framed at least partly in the belief that it would improve public confidence in public life. Sixteen years and twelve reports later, I'm pretty confident that standards have improved, um, though in parenthesis I would have to say that the concrete evidence is pretty hard to come by, but despite the probable improvement in actual standards, there's no evidence that public confidence has actually increased. Indeed, the opposite is generally the case. The implication is that if we want to improve trust in public services, we may need to adapt uh, other, to adopt other strategies than those which are simply directed at improving um, confidence and outcomes. In particular, there are some aspects of behavior which may, which may have nothing at all to do with competence or integrity, but which may nevertheless have a significant impact on levels of trust. Uh, I'm thinking of things like the courtesy with which a doctor deals with their patients and listens to their views, or the openness about the way decisions are made, uh, or about the factors affected them, or giving people the feeling that they've had an opportunity to influence those decisions. We neglect those softer considerations at our peril. Fourth and lastly, trust doesn't depend on regulation, transparency, leadership, um, accountability and so on on their own. It tends to be built and maintained through a series of individual experiences. It's the actions of every member of staff in the health and social care sector that can make or break the trust and confidence of patients and users in the health and social care services generally. 
it follows that if high levels of trust in public services are to be maintained, it's essential that individuals take responsibility for their own actions, consistently demonstrating their adherence to high standards and taking responsibility for their inevitable mistakes. Just like MPs, we must all take responsibility for our, for our own, accident, own actions if trust and confidence are to be maintained. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much indeed, Christopher, for a, a very um, stimulating um, exposition of some of the problems associated with trust and transparency operating simultaneously. We have um, a few minutes for uh, questions, um, so we're open to questions where we have already two. Um, so, firstly, the gentleman of the right. Yes. I'm afraid we don't. Uh, there's a roving mic. Thank you. Sir Christopher, you mentioned a few times in your um, talk uh, uh, the importance of leadership. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you'd like to expand just a little on the qualities that you're especially alluding to. Um, there, are, there are lots of people who make, um, who make, uh, who make a living uh, out of uh, talking about leadership indeed. The, um, King's Fund runs uh, some very admirable and effective courses on precisely this subject, which I recommend to everyone in this, in this room. Um, we all have our own definitions of leadership, don't we? In this, in this particular context, what I meant was, um, one of the things you can clearly see about most organizations is the way the behavior of, of those at the top uh, is reflected in activities lower down if the chief executive is, a, is for example, a bully uh, or, 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 or whatever, then one tends to, tend to get a bullying culture in the, in the organization. And in this respect, what I meant was it's all very well telling people that they have to observe high standards, but if they can see that high standards are not rewarded in the organization and that the leaders of the organization are not themselves observing high standards or attaching importance to them, then you, you won't get them however much external regulation or however much transparency there is. Yes. Um, thank you very much. I'm, I'm Sally Brearley. I'm chair of an organisation called HealthLink. Um, and thank you very much for that, Sir Christopher. I wonder if you would um, consider for a moment um, foundation trusts um, and how they measure up to trust and transparency um, and two things I'm thinking of in particular is while NHS trusts and primary care trusts are required to hold their board meetings in public, uh, foundation trusts are not so required and a recent survey by the Royal College of Nursing showed that about half of foundation trusts do not have public board meetings. Secondly, the, the chair of the trust is also the chair of the Council of Governors who are supposed to hold the Trust Board to account, which seems to me somewhat of a conflict of interest there. But I'd be very interested in your impressions. Thank you. Of course, it's interesting that we call them trusts, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, forgive me for not being an expert in, on the governance of um, foundation, uh, foundation Trusts. Um, there are many, I think I, would say, I think I would say two things, however, in response to, to what you just said. One is, um, 
that the avoidance of conflict of, of, of interest seems to be one of the foundations on which good behaviour rests and public trust, uh, public trust depends. Um, and there are still quite a few examples in public organisations where um, conflicts of interest seem to be seem to be built into the uh, to the arrangements. Um, usually because people think there are there are good and strong reasons. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, there is another example um, in the governance of London, for example, where um, a deliberately powerful mayor has been has been set up in order to achieve to achieve things, um, and he's uh, been given a professional um, uh, scrutiny committee in the form of the London Assembly, whose main job is to scrutinise the mayor's activities. But the mayor is unable to appoint some members of the assembly to to, um, to, put, to pay posts within his within his jurisdiction, and and of course people can rationalise that, but it it's, uh, does seem to conflict with with several several principles. As far as holding meetings in the public is concerned, um, I'm not sure what I think about that. I think I would have to. I think I would ask. I think I would ask. The, I think I would. I think I would ask the question: Is there any evidence that those who don't hold their meetings in public actually enjoy less trust and, and confidence, or is it simply one of those <laughs> things where people say this is a, this is this is abhorrent? abhorrent. And secondly, um, surveys with which I'm familiar suggest that actually a lot of members of the public are less interested in whether uh, organisations generally in the public services um, actually show best practice in accountability as, uh, as in whether or not they're delivering good, good services. And, and sometimes poor accountability mechanisms do mean poor services, but sometimes, sometimes they don't. So I think I'd want to ask the question, what, are, what, what effect on perceptions does that practice have? And is it actually associated with worse outcomes or, worse outcomes or not? I think the focus on outcomes is quite I have to say, I was sitting on a, a board of a hospital once, and the chief executive said, "This is a this is a matter in which the public has a great deal of interest. I think we should put it in the private part of the meeting." <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes. Uh, thank you. My name is Jackie Davis. I'm a doctor. Um, I'd just like to ask you. Really, you touched on the effect of the um, increasing commercialisation of public services on trust and transparency, and I'd just like to. Uh, take that a bit further really. First of all you didn't comment on MPs and their increasing um, uh, characteristic of passing through the revolving door from the public to the private sector and I think that has caused a great deal of tr mistrust particularly from the point of view of somebody working in the health service. Um, you talked about um, patients being able to trust their doctors at the moment because our decisions are impartial and I wonder how you think that's going to be affected when the commercial sector starts to deliver health services. Um, and also the inability of people to whistleblow once uh, institutions are competing with each other because it's much less uh, tolerated to whistleblow if you're competing with somebody down the road and the whistleblowing is going to damage that competition. Um, I think there's a real fear at the moment um, in health, uh, on the part of health workers about whistleblowing. We know what's happening to them. You just have to open the British Medical Journal every week to see what happens to whistleblowers. Uh, and if people don't believe it, I just leave you with one word, which is Stafford. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for well, the three questions there. Um, it's not so much MPs and revolving doors. It's, it's 
services dealing with defence procurement and being able to go and work for arms companies and meet outdoors or whatever. Um, those mechanisms at the moment look a bit outdated and some work is going on to, to review uh, how, well they, how, well they, how well they operate. Um, in, terms of, in terms of will greater provision by private sector providers make people more nervous I suspect the answer must be yes, isn't it? I mean, this is this is clearly something to be clearly something to be um, to be to be monitored. And and thirdly, the um, uh, whistleblowing is, a, is, a, is, a, is actually a good example of, of what I say about what I said about mechanisms and institutional arrangements not being enough. Um, on the face of it, there are some well-designed arrangements for whistleblowing and protecting whistleblowing. But Stafford is not the only example of. Of, a, of an area where actually those don't seem to be working effectively in terms of protecting whistleblowers and encouraging other people to think that um, if they do whistleblow, they will be they will be protected. There are examples not only in the health service but in local authorities where uh, where whistleblowers are, are quite clearly not being effectively protected. Of course, um, as far as the private providers are concerned, uh, GPs are already private that providers. That's true. Um, Uh, Stephen McIntosh from Carers UK. Um, about the future funding of social care, um, honesty about the scale of the funding gap would seem to require uh, the politicians to speak to the public about major increases in taxation or significant voluntary or compulsory personal contributions to the, the costs of care. How do politicians take along the public um, with these painful decisions personally um, when they think they may be getting these services free as they do with healthcare? Um. One of the, um, I, I once did some work for the Joseph Roundtree Foundations on paying for the cost of uh, long-term care at, at roughly the same time as David Warnless was doing doing his work, but which, sorry, but with much less with much less publicity. I think one of the great regrets is that is that the financing of long-term care was allowed to become a um, a political issue in the in the election because it clearly damaged taking sensible decisions about it for. Um, for, for some time, and indeed precisely the same happened, although to a lesser extent, for the 97 election. Peter Lilly had some quite sensible proposals to, uh, to discuss in uh, uh, the period leading up to 97, and, and, and they became politicised, and he was told to, he was told to, um, to back off. I don't, um, I don't myself blame um, uh, politicians for not being as uh, open and honest as they might have been in a pre-election period about paying the cost of long-term care because whatever we say about how we would prefer politicians to be honest about these things, um, experience suggests that, that that's politicians who, who are honest about such things are not, um, are not rewarded by the, by the electorate. So a degree of obfuscation in election periods is absolutely, absolutely inevitable. Um, I, I, uh, I would like to think that, um, that the funding of long-term care, that there is now a better degree of understanding than there was, but frankly I don't have any great confidence, particularly in the current deficit situation, of people being prepared to, being prepared to take the decisions necessary about it, or indeed the electorate to, frankly, to support those decisions.
Hello, Sir Chris. Malcolm Alexander from the National Association of Link Members. I wonder if you could tell us if you think there should be a legal duty of candor in, in the health service, uh, meaning that if a health professional either witnesses or, or has participated in an act which is harmful to a patient, that they should have a legal duty to declare what they've observed. I think I would have to think about that. Um, I think that is a, a, or that might, that could well be a good example of um, a gut reaction might be to say, well, of course there should be, of course there should be, there should always be candor, but I suspect there are some other considerations which, 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 which might be involved. Would you distinguish between candor and freedom of information in some senses? Is there something else going on there? Well, I think some of the problems in the past have been, for example, in operating theatres where people have witnessed harm to patients where, and, and they've kept the matter confidential or you know, there's, there's a, an almost conspiracy between professionals to keep the matter quiet. And really what I'm suggesting is that if you're in, a, in an operating theatre, for example, and, you, and a, a nurse, for example, witnesses a surgeon uh, doing something which is harmful to a patient, that, that the nurse feels that, that whatever the pressures on her that, or, or him, that they, that, that they take action, um, and that they feel obliged to do so. That's certainly an interesting idea. I'm sorry, I'm ducking that question. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will come up again. <laughs> um, I'm David Hogarth. I'm from uh, Westminster Local Involvement Network, that's Westminster Link. Um, I go to quite a lot of overview and scrutiny committees, and always the most interesting part of the proceedings turns out to be confidential. It's usually, I can't remember the act, but I, it's usually on the basis that it contains financial information of some person, perhaps also including the local authority. I just really want to know, are you familiar with the law on this, and do you think that the law um, is satisfactory as it stands, or, or, or should it be altered? Uh, more information I'm not. am not an expert on the law governing the activities of scrutiny committees. Um, I would say, however, that in general, scrutiny uh, committees and local authorities uh, have proved to be very disappointing in terms of the way that they operate. Um, perhaps we should only be disappointed in them, however, if, if we were unrealistic about what could be achieved in the in the first place. The there seemed to be a belief that scrutiny committees would be able to operate in the same way as select committees in the House of Commons, which almost the activities of which are almost entirely in the public uh, in the public in the public arena. Um, in practice, it hasn't operated like that, except in a very few, except in a very few authorities, because um, well, for all sorts of reasons to do with uh, people's willingness to. Uh, to uh, to appear to attack the policies of, of their own party, uh, to do with the calibre of people involved in uh, in uh, scrutiny committees who who um, haven't found uh, who haven't found a place in the in the uh, cabinet of the leader of the of the authority and uh, and so on. I think that I think that in any organisation there will be some things which it is probably right, should be kept confidential. I have a strong suspicion, as indeed you appear to have, that that uh, route is, 
is taken too often uh, in circumstances which aren't always which aren't always justified. Any more questions? Just have uh, one myself, then uh, that gentleman. Um, the um, you you didn't mention the quote when you were thinking of your four principles. Um, about whether, it's maybe a slightly cynical view, whether another course of action might be to sort of remove the opportunities for people to abuse the trust. I mean, examples might be, uh, as indeed I'm sure the MPs would have said, um, suppose they were, e.g., paid more and prevented from having income from other sources, um, or consultants and private practice, for instance, uh, which is a source of mistrust or something, whether... Um, that, there might be some route there for encouraging trust. Yeah, I believe that the very often, uh, the very often, the very often is a some uh, some route there. And indeed, um, one of the things we did in our report in terms of MPs was not to say that they that they shouldn't uh, take on external external employment while still being a member of Parliament, but actually to make it much more difficult for them to to do so. I mean, this is partly because. Uh, we did think that it was totally unre unreasonable for someone to uh, take a salary as, as a member of parliament at the same time be a leading criminal barrister, as at least one member of the previous House of Commons was. But there seemed to us to be nothing wrong with uh, nothing wrong with uh, an MP earning earning something by doing a bit of political journalism or writing a or writing a column. But we did think that in that context, um, we did think very hard in that context about banning it altogether, as some had some had argued, it seemed to us that the better course in that particular respect was transparency. And so what we recommended was that uh, there should be a greater degree of transparency about what people were actually doing with their time, and moreover, at the point at which they uh, put themselves up for election, um, they, should be they should be obliged to declare either that they're going to be a full-time member of parliament or indeed that they're going to continue to be a, to be a, member, of, a member of parliament. I think, the, um, I think the question of pay is related to it a little bit. Um, but I think it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't just that. It wasn't that MPs were underpaid. It was that they believed that they were underpaid, and indeed, people from Margaret Thatcher down encouraged them in that belief that they were underpaid, despite the fact that sixty-four thousand pounds a year is is actually um, well up the, the the distribution of the of the income within, I think the, within the top ten percent. Yes. Think. Yes. Um, Howard Catton from the Royal College of Nursing. Um, in terms of improving trust and transparency in the NHS, which approach would you favour most? An independent health board as proposed by the Conservatives or locally elected health boards proposed by the Liberal Democrats? I think we'd be interested in the answer. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you would be, be held to it. <laughs> Generally speaking, I am a believer in, uh, I mean, this is stating a prejudice, I'm a believer in localism rather than, rather than centralism. But I also believe that there are far too many people um, actually involved in all sorts of local, local, uh, local boards already, which has implications for the quality of those um, available to do it. I think that, for example, if you look at the number of, of councillors that there are, it's quite unjustified by the by the role of by the, role, the roles now the roles now enjoyed by backbench councillors in in um, authorities that have a leader and cabinet and cabinet model and I think I'd be more in favour of of a local model of accountability. If actually I thought there were more people available to um, uh, 
with the competence and experience to, um, to do those roles. I think on that note, uh, we should draw this to a close. Um, uh, uh, Sir Mr. Kelly has, um, I think, displayed a great deal of trust in us uh, to provide intelligent questions. He's given us some very transparent answers. Uh, and he's been careful in his analysis of trust, transparency, and care. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.